three, two, one. Let's go! I like it. Well, because it's the Zoom thing. It's a, you know, there's a lag and you never quite figure out how, how much the lag. I, uh, but man, I am the host of the, uh, of the PBE podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by Stan Keith uh, from Magma Kim Research Institute as co-host for this episode. And we have Eric Anderson on this show from Cinmax and uh, a ton of really cool uh, conversations and little tidbits has come out. But certainly uh, what dropped out from the, the show for me is Cinmax ability to provide a, a new data set or a new form of information when it comes to drilling rigs and frack crews and the actual action that's going on in the ground. You know, these frack crews, these men and women that are out there supplying the oil and gas to the refineries to keep the supply and demand and the commodity prices and all that stuff balanced and working, they're imaging that stuff you know, daily processing it, putting in some AI that make 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 sense of it all. I mean, this show was was fascinating for me as understanding programming a little bit more, the computer aspect of this a little bit more, but also really how it uh, has an effect to to deliver information about the processes and the operations of our business. And this is really really valuable information at this time. That's what I got from the show. Stan, what'd you get? We got to talk to this guy some more. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Some, guys. Um, so, yeah, we will definitely stay in touch. What dropped out for, for the uh, the show for you, sir? Um, I probably said too much, but you know what? Uh, it's fine. Let's put it out there. I'll deal with the consequences later. I'm sure I pissed off somebody, right? Maybe it was the, uh, you know, free country comment about Twitter Maybe maybe BHP didn't like me spreading rumors. I don't know. <laughs> oh, BHP I got a rumors. Big mouth. But uh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see what drops out of the show for me. Maybe I will have to go to Discovery Channel. Maybe I'll need a new job after this. <laughs> yeah, same. You could turn this into a reality show. I'm sure. This episode is brought to you by Atlas. Atlas is the Permian Basin's leading maintenance and repair service center. We provide full service bumper to bumper maintenance, repair and diagnostics for all makes and models of the most in-demand cars, trucks and SUVs. We also provide the same full service solutions to keep your fleet running and 100% DOT compliant. Our pump division also provides the industry with the shortest turnaround times, keeping your transfer and injection pumps in the field where they belong. Our technicians and staff are eager to work with you and are willing to do what you need when you need it. Parts, service, and a desire to exceed your expectations are what set us apart from the rest. Call Atlas today at 432-245-5858 or visit us at www.atlas-ustx.com. This episode of PBE Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Geolog. Geolog offers cost-effective, lab-quality, quantitative, real-time formation evaluation and reservoir characterization solutions to improve well placement, production forecasting, and optimizing of completions. They even have a service that can monitor bitware while drilling. I've actually utilized their services while drilling wells in the Permian Basin and we were highly impressed with the data acquisition process and the quality of the interpretations. These guys at Geolog are passionate about the data they collect each day at every well site. They've been doing it for 40 years. They are passionate about drill cuttings, passionate about mud gas data, passionate about what the data means and how the data can add value to an asset. They probably collect the most amount of drill cuttings and mud gas data globally each day of any privately owned surface mud logging company. Geolog always employ a consistent quantitative analytical methodology, whether on the well site or back at the lab. So data collected at one well can be compared in another well. We'll be doing a podcast with Dr. Guy Oliver, Geolog's Director of Energy Transition and Data Science, who will be talking more about what Geolog does and diving more into the types of data they collect. That's cool. You got a lot going on in this room. You got uh, uh, what looks to be a topographical map of the world. You got a wizard's hat in the corner over there. That's right. 
that's yeah that's cracks of the world that one's cool got the plate uh -huh. tectonic equator all the largest cracks of our crust that are hooked to the upper mantle that's breathing and singing to us as we're learning more about uh and then the mics man the mics and the cameras yeah we we just we go for it that's exciting stuff i so you're both geologists oh yeah last time okay. we checked yeah <laughs> um, I don't know much about geology, but I did read a book a few years ago. I think it was called The Story of Earth and 23 Rocks. Gave me a little Whoa. bit of an intro. <laughs> I haven't heard yeah. that. Well, you've that heard sounds of it? No, that sounds awesome. Okay. It's it's one of those um it's one of those science books that's like made for people who don't know anything about science, you know, one of those like mass digestible things about geology. But you know, I live in Houston and I work in oil and gas, so I figured I'd better have something uh to talk about at parties with geologists. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and it was really cool. I, I, it had a chapter on coal. And the thing I found fascinating about coal is there will never be another atom of coal created geologically because it was created during a period when there were plants, but there, were, there was nothing to, to um, destroy the plants. Coal is that accurate was, or am I just totally misquoting that? Coal was created at a time where there were plants, but there were nothing. Well, it wasn't else. created, but but the basically the, the the plant matter, the organic matter piled on top and then you know sediment paddled on top of that. And it didn't decay because there were no insects to decay it. And there was no bacteria. So it turned into a rock called coal. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Okay. I don't know. Neither <laughs> neither of you seem to think that's true. So maybe I'm totally off base. Well, as you could see, that look of skepticism on my face is well founded. <laughs> okay. There's one okay. type. I better of coal. I better stick to what I know then. No. Let's not go into geology. No. <laughs> no, that's the best part, man. That's the best part. Huh. Okay. So what are you gonna say about coal, Stan? What were you gonna say? Well, there's three types of coal. Okay. The one he's talking about, which is humic coal. And you can still make those coals are still being made in certain places where you've got enough burial metamorphism that it's cooking the humic coal layers, cooking the swamps up. And no bugs down there eating it away. Right. Okay. But then you've got chemical coals, which are completely sourced completely differently, and they're coming from the deep. And those are things like oil shales, like I have in Wyoming and Utah, Colorado. It's a place called the Green River System. And those are hydrocarbon seeps that are coming up from the deep mm -hmm. and they, so serpentinization and the serpentinite muds are right and that's part of this green crap that you've been that's in our background here huh so the coal you consider that a coal deposit some people would consider the green river oil shales type one coal yeah wow that's that's interesting see Algonites. this is good stuff man that's the We're off to a great start, but I'm totally out of my element. I'm just going to be a listener at this point. <laughs> I don't know enough about coal to contribute. And then you said there's a third type of coal. Yeah, that's type two coals. That's sporonites. They have a lot of those over in Europe. Huh. Okay. And they're you know they're um, kind of almost mixtures of humic and and then uh, kind of two end members. There's the algonite. Type one, that's the real chemical coal. Whoa. And the sporinite is mostly chemical, but it does have a humic component and then it, it's a hybrid. Yeah. And then what the huh. Cool. Then you have the normal swamp coals. Right. Start out in a swamp. And that's the classic right. coal metamorphic line. Right. Well, hey, that's a uh, a good way to start a uh, conversation with some geologists, dude. <laughs> well, yeah, I I definitely got my money's worth for that book. <laughs> I pulled actually it up. checked I'm... it out from the library. So oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, so you, you didn't even pay for it. No, I didn't even pay for it. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, twenty-five well, rocks. Not you, you said twenty-three rocks. Is it twenty-five? Twenty-five. Yeah. yeah. Get it right. Okay. They need well, to maybe it. one of the earlier editions was twenty three. Who knows? Uh huh. Yeah. See, the one he rented could have been twenty three. <laughs> they, they should do. Uh, they should. Or maybe I skipped down. the last two chapters. I can't remember. <laughs> right on. I'm formerly of an energy hedge fund. Uh, in fact, the first iteration of this project came from an energy hedge fund called Skyler Capital, uh, where I was the head of quantitative model development. And you know, we use satellites and Earth observation for everything—not just rigs and frat crews, but you know, we would assess storm damage right to critical infrastructure. Um, you know, we even had a project where we 
tried to measure the subsidence of the earth as underground um, caverns were being filled or depleted with gas using special kind of satellite called SAR. So we can talk and talk about all the really cool things being done with satellites in the internet. That, that would be fun to talk about. Yep. You got a case Let's history of that? We can dive into a part of the world and you can show us kind of what it looked like. And Well, it ended up not working. <laughs> ah. So no, we don't have a history of it. So um, you but thought it was... I could, the story is still fascinating and the ground does move. When you inject gas, the ground does move. The problem is, is that other things cause the ground to move too. And it creates too much noise to pull the signal out to the degree of accuracy we needed. So you, you haven't found uh, an oil field that's filling itself up that you can image, can't you? that you've multiple imaged, have you? Not yet. Right on. Yeah, there's a famous one off of Gulf of, uh, Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, the, Eugene Island. Eugene Island filling itself back up and nobody knows how. Really? Yeah. How do they know it's filling itself back up? Well, what happened was it. it was a major <laughs> multi-hundred million barrel oil field. Okay. And they emptied it out. And so they were told by the environmental regulatories to, um, okay, you can't just walk away from this thing. You have to monitor it to make sure it doesn't kill anybody. So they stuck some monitor, put some uh, gauges on their wells, oh, yeah, that's walked right. away for 15 years or so, and then came back and checked. <laughs> Pressured up. All of a sudden, what's this? All this pressure. And it turned out the damn thing had filled itself back up again. Wow. Is that the only instance of that happening? No, there's other places where that's potentially happening. Uh, the LA oil fields are always renewing themselves. Yeah. And that's called the La Brea perpetual re renewal is the La Brea tar pits. Yeah. yeah. Ever, ever been to the LA County Museum by any chance? I have not. I try to stay away from LA. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Well, it's in a, a park that's, that's continuously uh, seeping through the oil. Just It's very annoying because you can't put a blanket down anywhere because you're going <laughs> to sit on an oil patch. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. And that's Any, anywhere near that tar pit. Yeah. California, dude, is, is some of the w most wild geology on the planet. It's basically active serpentinization that's going on there from an old subducting plate and uh and this rock is very dynamic and it has a lot to do with you know the mantle heating up and how gases and volatiles make their way through rocks and it's changing you know right now and uh if, if you were looking for something filling itself up that's one of the first places i'd go look because there's very active oil seeps and gas seeps going on there yeah they got drill or pump jacks in buildings, you know, hiding hiding under buildings and on famous streets, and they're just pulling fluid out of stuff because they can't keep it from coming up the seats like he's talking about. They can't keep this stuff pumped off, and if they didn't wow. do, yeah, if they didn't do that, they'd be oil in the gutters. Who knows? Well, I mean, it was doing that before anybody ever showed up to make an oil field out of it. Oh yeah, L.A. Basin's one of the most famous oil and gas basins I mean ever. that La Brea seep was there I mean it's been was filling when, when there weren't any humans around although they actually have found humans mixed around with the bones that are that they've been pulling out of that tar wow. pit and they have this big huge museum that's built right next to the tar pit that has all of the critters on display saber tooth tiger oh, yeah. and all that stuff yeah, those are the uh, prehistoric that. roughnecks that fell into the oil pits <laughs> well the the humans they found were um Maybe they were sacrifices. They were women that had that somehow gotten trained in the uh, tar. Oh, wow. They've identified the bones as women bones. Oh, yeah. Women bones. That's we amazing. will never know the story. No. Well, that's a shame. You know, it's, it seems like this geology is probably completely unappreciated in the state of California where they, they don't do much with right. their oil and gas. Yep. No, they, I mean, well, they, they do, they, but they try to keep it quiet. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> they not, make a lot of money on it. I a lot of money. Either. Yeah. Offshore and all that stuff, you know, a little bit of out of my backyard mentality in LA for sure. But up, up and down the great Valley, there's a ton of oil coming out of there and, and they happily take the tax money from that. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's, let's do this, dude. The conception part of the PBE podcast Right, that's what we're rolling into now. The conception part of the PBE podcast. That's where me and Stan get to sit back and listen to your story. We just, I, I'm genuinely interested in how Eric Anderson has become the Eric Anderson CTO 
for is it uh, Synmax? Synmax. Synmax. Yeah. Synmax. You know how? Synmax. What's the story, man? What happened? All right. Eric Anderson always liked programming. Uh, my dad was a software engineer. I started learning C when I was 12. Um, I don't know why I didn't major in computer science. If I could do it all over again, I absolutely would. Uh, for you know, I guess I was young and dumb, so I majored in finance at the worst possible time. This is you know in 2008. Uh, financial crisis. Bernie made oh, off. Yeah. Bernie made <laughs> off. <laughs> so I graduated and I couldn't find a job, right? Because I've, I've got a finance degree. Um, eventually, I found work in Houston because if you remember at the time, oil was up in the 140s, 150s. And That's so right. all the energy companies were hiring. And it just so happened I married a girl from Houston. So it was a natural place for us to settle. Right on. Yeah. Um, so I went down to Houston, worked as an accountant for a year, absolutely hated it. Uh, got a job at Merrill Lynch uh, for Merrill Lynch Commodities, working in their commodities team. And I loved it. It was a great fit for me. And at the time when I started working, which was about 10 years ago, um, everything that you needed to do to analyze the commodity markets, you could do in an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> never more than 10,000 rows of data, right? Like, you know, these huge multi-billion dollar decisions are completely resting on Excel. And over the course of my career, I have seen the commodity industry and the finance industry in general go from that to ingesting terabytes of data per hour to make these same trading decisions. So we've gone from the world financial industry being built on Excel to it being built on Python and SQL servers. And yeah. that's where it is today. And I was where part are you of that from? journey. So I'm from Colorado. I was born and raised in Colorado. Yeah. What part? Fort Collins. Oh, cool. It's, it's weird. Yeah. Well, like everybody I talk to, and I know you guys aren't in Texas anymore, but you were formerly. Um, everybody I talk to in Texas has some connection to Colorado. Colorado is just like Texas plus and you know, they probably hate like hearing that, but like there's yeah. so many Texans in Colorado. Wow. Well, I'm a Johnny come lately to Texas. I'm, I'm from California. So yeah, that's why okay. I know about the dead animals in the La Brea tar pits. Yeah. Grew up right down the street from them. Uh, okay. So from Colorado, got it. You marry a, Histo a Houstonian and, right. uh, Go into work and and Merrill Lynch has caught you. You really like what you're doing. You, you're evaluating assets for Merrill Lynch in the oil and gas business, or what are you doing? Uh, I was doing something called middle office, which is um, not very glamorous, but it's a step up from accounting. Um, it's it's basically just calculating the profit and loss um, on all the traders' books, which are you know their portfolio of trades, right? But it was, a, it was a good introductory job into commodities. And, and I started learning the fundamentals and I started getting to know the business and the people in it. And I really liked it. And then um, after a little while there, I got offered a job to join Bill Perkins uh, hedge fund, which was starting up called Scholar Capital. Um, joined them as a middle office analyst, quickly got promoted into an actual analyst. Um, and then from there, I you know became a quantitative analyst and started building all of their models you know, with, my, uh, with my programming acumen. Somewhere in the middle of that, I got my... Um, CFA charter, which is a financial credential that uh, didn't end up doing any good for me, but uh, still a still a journey. And um, yeah, when we were at um, Skyler, you know, Bill's shop, Skyler Capital, is what's referred to as a fundamental shop. Which you know, you can have a a hedge fund that trades off of anything, right? Your your strategy can be related to technicals. Your strategy can be related to sentiment. Um, fundamental shops they try to model out the flow of every molecule of oil and gas and decide what it means for price and where it's going. So in my opinion, and I'm biased, a fundamental shop is actually providing value to the market, whereas the others, it's the, the connection is less direct, right? You could say they're, they're providing liquidity, but they're not really providing value. You know, The oil industry is, is famous for its boom bust cycle. Well, in, in a world where we had perfect analytics and, um, you know, the complete liquidity to trade, those boom bust cycles should not exist because fundamental valuists, um, they go out and try to forecast when there is over and under supply situations, bring that information into the price and keep things running stably. We can't do it that, with oil and gas. That's my, well, we haven't figured it out yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> do you use uh, any geological parameters to try to keep that under control? Uh, so I'm not sure if this counts as geological parameters, but you know, half of the supply and demand equation is supply. And so every fundamental hedge fund builds a supply model where they, 
will you know look at because it's all available from the state agencies things like you know what are the wells in this area of this lateral length producing in their first month and their second month and their third month right and how how do how can you predict that out into a decline curve and okay so you know what does that mean if i add all those up right i say okay here's all the wells and i add all those decline curves up what does that mean for the total profile and okay how many you know new wells are there are, are being drilled right and what are the producers saying they're going to drill and it's a ton of math that ends up hopefully giving you a forecast of what oil and gas on the supply side is going to do. So if that qualifies for geology, um, that's the closest we get to it. So well, the thing you need to know is that, that what you get from the government is the known supply. The more interesting question is where is the new unknown and the new oil going to come from? Yeah. And then the known supply in the industry has typically uh not projected very well like we have a big field and we've drilled four wells and you got enough room for 400 and so you just start extrapolating the future based on those four wells and then as you get to the 15th well the 16th well all of a sudden it's yeah, it's, it's very ch it changes a lot and probably yeah. the operator changed already by then and yeah you just got i mean what an interesting problem to calculate supply based on what we think we know of an asset that hasn't been drilled yet. So you're talking about the PUDs, the proved undeveloped or those things that the bankers are looking at. Exactly. And those types of models are extremely difficult to get right because they're aggregate models. You're taking a bunch of small things and you're putting them together to see what the size of the large things should be. So that means that you're aggregating everything, including your errors. So if you have a small error in your small thing and you multiply that times all the small things in your model, all of a sudden you have a big error. So they're really tough models to get right. A better model, in fact, I think the best model in the industry right now is just the producer survey, but it's getting worse. So the producer survey is just, you listen to the earnings calls of all the public oil and gas companies and they tell you what their forecast is. We're going to produce this many barrels next quarter and the quarter after that, et cetera. And then you say, okay, so here is my sample, right? Of all the companies that are public. Here are the companies that are not public, so I don't have that number. Okay, now let me extrapolate that. If the companies that are not public are representative of the ones that are public, what's production going to do? And that's the best model, to my knowledge, that exists right now. But it's getting worse because thanks to ESG investing, um, all the public companies are going private because the public markets hate them, right? Yeah. And so that, that <laughs> producer sample is shrinking constantly. So we need a better model. And that's part of the reason why we developed this FRAC model. So Bill Perkins the owner of Schuyler Capital went to a TED talk. I don't remember the year, but um, one of the founders of Planet Labs. Planet Labs is a San Francisco-based company that launched um, commercial satellites, right? Hundreds of them. He was giving a talk on his development of what is now called the Planet Scope Constellation. And the idea behind it is very novel, right? So we think of a, of a satellite constellation as um, just a bunch of cameras in the sky that can move around, point, and take a picture. Right. Hmm. And that's very close to what the Planetscope Network is, except that their innovation is they never turn the camera off and they never point it. So they're always pointing at the ground and they're always taking just one long roller picture as they fly over the earth. And they have 200 of these satellites up now, over 200. Wow. And, and so that they was are novel? imaging. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was novel because nobody had ever tried to image the entire earth before and nobody has since. And now Planet Labs is imaging the entire Earth twice a day. And you got direct line to this? Yes, we have partnered with Planet Labs. Wow. Yeah. So Bill got to talking um, to this guy, and eventually we decided we are going to build a better production model using this data, right? Because the rig data is very available. Baker Hughes releases a rig count every week. And if you subscribe to them, you can get it even more frequently than that. And it's extremely accurate, right? But you know, in the post-shale world, the rig count isn't enough because a drilled well is not a completed well. That's right. right. And they'll drill them and they'll hold them in duck state, drilled but uncompleted state, sometimes for years. That's right. Sometimes they'll never complete them. Sometimes they'll drill them and they'll just plug them, right? So when um, this last so year- So you can't just look at rigs. Yeah, this last year, you're following frat crews. You must have been going crazy with the frat crews because there wasn't a lot of drilling, but the frat crews were, were getting after it since like, yeah, early 2020. That's exactly right. That's exactly wow. right. The, the, the ratio of fracks to rigs was really high 
But more recently, you know, because we've been we've been capturing these images, we take over 30,000 images a week with the Planet Scope Network. Yeah, L let me blow your mind. If you have stepped on an oil and gas well anywhere in the continental US in the last two years, chances are I've got a picture of you. Let's find it. I got one. I've been, I've been <laughs> dancing around these three wells for the last year like crazy. You're going to well, see yeah, with a yeah, but that's, fucking Howard hat on and running around. All right. <laughs> Are you talking about stripper wells as well? Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that term. Just any well, any active wells that are running? Any well that we can detect a well pad for, right? So there, there are definitely wells that... Um, you know, they're, they're smaller or more conventional wells, but any well that can be fracked and has a well pad, we're taking a picture of it and we're, we're archiving it. Wow. How and, do you know that it can be fracked or not fracked? Well, we don't. So we take more pictures than we need and we just check them all anyways. Yeah. And but a if pad we, is if we very can't discern a well pad out of it, we assume it's just, it's just a, um, Old a, pump a traditional well. Yeah. yeah, just like, okay. it's got to be like a pump jack or something. But if we can okay. see a well, well pad, that means a frack crew can come up. It'd be interesting to see if they have a picture of you. <laughs> That'd be funny. Now, I, I got to caveat that somewhat. It's a cool statistic, but the resolution is probably not high enough for me to discern anything. You'd, you'd get maybe <laughs> one or two pixels in that picture, but I still got you. Right on. That was that was my next question. You know how how uh, how accurate it, accurate is the resolution, or how 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 much is the resolution? How big is your pixel? Yeah, um, three meters. Three meters by three meters. So one person would be one pixel. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I can see trucks and I can discern frack trucks and I can discern drilling rigs and I can discern when, you know, a pile of drilling pipes sitting to the side or a trailer or whatever. Um, but individuals, yeah, I, I mean, I can't make an identification. Holy smokes. Now the program does this. The program knows how to identify these things and compartmentalize it. Does, yeah. it. Wow. And yeah, you built so that? Our, I did. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I built this. Um, product originally at Skylar, we kept it to ourselves. We used it in our trading. Um, and then we formed Synmax. We formed Synmax because we wanted to create um, another frack model, a bigger and better frack model. So we threw away all that code from Skylar and we rebuilt it from the ground up. And that product is called Hyperion. So originally at Skylar, we were just taking 10,000 images a week and we had some, uh, you know, one data source provider, um, you know, just to give us some internal data, threw all that away went to Synmax, rebuilt it from the ground up. Hyperion now takes 30,000 images a week, has multiple data providers. Um, and we are, I don't want to disclose anything, but we're looking at tracking more than just rigs and frack crews. We're hoping, we're hoping we, can, we can milk some additional value out of this imagery. Well, I would say to, uh, to definitely start mapping out, at least if you have the ability to archive back to like six months to eight months to present and to the future, I would be very interested in what you guys can develop on the water management side of the Permian Basin. There's a massive amount of, of water displacement and operators are trying to figure out what to do. Service companies are trying to figure out what to do. Railroad commission is trying to solve a problem. It's causing the earthquakes, right? So you can't keep injecting. What are they doing? You know, I've heard heard different stories. That a lot of recycling, a lot of moving around from tank to tank, and a lot of truck traffic to try to keep them keep the brine moving because you can't inject it is fast. I think that would be pretty pretty interesting data set to to build. Oh, I agree. Yeah, and you can definitely see the water in the satellite pictures. You know, and and you know, not all well pads, as you know, treat the water the same way. Some they'll have uh, they'll construct a giant pit. They'll dump it in there. They'll truck it in and out using the pit, right? Others, they have some types of uh, networks of pipes they can move it around. Um, and yeah, um, so, you know, that that is all visible from space. Um, now, the question of whether or not we want to create that data set ultimately comes down to, will a customer pay for it? So it may be the most interesting data set in the world, but, you know, satellite imagery is expensive. Right. Yeah. I would go to the BEG or, or UT Austin and say, Hey, give me a, give me a bunch of money out of one of your grants and I'll build this database for you guys to, to look at and study. And maybe they have some money for, for something like that. But <laughs> hey, if anybody's listening, it's eric at synmax.com. I'll give you an address you can mail the check to. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And I may or may not have taken at least a bottle of whiskey for the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very cool, man. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, what I want to do with the conception part of the show is I, I want you to explain as simply as possible how someone tells a robot to think like a human in regards to find me frack trucks versus drill rigs. Like how do you teach a robot to do that? How, simply please. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, let me start this whole thing by saying I hate the term AI. I, I almost never use it. It's such an overused platitude in our industry, and everybody tries to make it out like you know you're building the Terminator. AI is. Can I curse on the show? Okay, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> like my five-year-old is smarter than the very best AI model that has ever been trained. Okay, like it's it, it, it's 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 really it's really uh, fascinating. There's a, there's a lot of hype around it. Some of it's justified. You can do cool things that you could never do before, but it is not smart. That's not its strength. The strength of AI is its scalability, not its intelligence. Right. So if I'm trying to track a hundred thousand well pads. And I want to see, is there a rig on this well pad? Is there a fracker on this well pad? It's not feasible for me to pay somebody to look at 100,000 pictures and click, yes, there's a rig. No, there's nothing. Yes, there's a frat crew, right? And that's where AI shines, is um, you can train, and train is a really appropriate term. Yeah, a that's model. called a training set. I'm, I'm familiar with that stuff. Exactly, yeah. You can train a model to recognize objects. And so we have two different machine learning models uh, as a part of Hyperion. One recognizes the well pads. So it's it's really just, you know, we, we've created a perfectly clean data set of well pads where we actually did have humans go through and look at satellite pictures and draw, okay, here's a well pad. This is not a well pad. This is a well pad, right? This very pristinely clean, lots of eyes looked at it to make sure it's perfect. The more clean your data, the better your model is going to be. And then you just show those examples over and over again to a neural network until its accuracy reaches an acceptable level or it starts overfitting. And, and that's, that's our, our, what we call our well pad detector model. And then the second one just takes those well pad clips, right? So we cut everything else out. We cut all the noise out. So we're just looking at the well pad. We feed it to a model that then determines what's going on in this well pad. Is it being drilled? Is it being fracked? Or is it inactive? We don't care about it, right? So those two sets of models are now wired together in with a pipeline of satellite images from planet. Right, that are spitting out the location of every drilling rig and frack crew on about a three-day lag, constantly. So the computer sees an image. The image has everything. It's a well pad and like farmland and a couple of houses yeah, and a Walmart parking lot and, <laughs> a Walmart uh, parking uh, and Denny's lot. and you know yeah it's 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 a messy picture and you never know what's going to be in it right. So the computer sees everything, but it knows I don't care about the Walmart parking lot. I don't care about the Denny's. I want the well pad. Because it's it a perfect a square around the well pad. It's just based on a simple shape. It's just based on a square. You like find based on whatever parameters are in the model that have to fit. Yeah. So so um you know the most common object detectors yeah they do rectangles right but um you know you can you can uh, make models now that will do you know any any type of outline or um, I'm trying to think of the right term for it I can't think of it. Um, Anyways, any, any type of shape that you want, right, to, to perfectly outline an object, you can do that in a model now. Okay. So, Ben, it, you get your snapshot of the square. It identifies, I think, I'm really confident this is a drill pad, and then it wipes out everything else. It's just focusing on all the, all the shapes now inside that set of pixels. And then you're saying a, a frack truck is usually 50 feet long. A drilling rig is usually 70 feet long, or there's some differences. And it, it oh, yeah, now looks very different. So, and, and you build those differences off based on shapes and pixels for the computer. It, to, it just outputs, it outputs a simple category at the end that says this is fracking, this is drilling, or this is inactive. And we have a lot of help, by the way. There's a lot of ancillary data sets that go into this. So you we're not just- numbers in there too. Oh, for an AI model? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of different types. Um, yeah, they, I think they all operate on the same AI basic models. ideas. Yeah, so on geology side, we do similar, similar type stuff with analytic data. So it's like chemical makeup of the rock and all the different elements that it's made of and all the different, you know, ratios or percentages, the weight percent of these things. And you correlate all that and you run this kind of an AI uh, program and it, it starts clustering certain elements together that seem to have a high coefficient, high like relationship. And then that pops out and someone like Stan, who's seen it all, heard it all, starts thinking, why would that data cluster, you know, have to do with this copper anomaly that's here or this gold or the oil and gas? You know, he starts thinking about the geology of it. 
So, so your your computer program sees the 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 operations of fracking or drilling and and oil and gas and how that develops, and you're teaching it how to recognize specific types of operations happening on that pad in a picture. Yeah. And it sounds impressive. It's really not. I mean, these pick, they're really, really different from each other. A drilling lid looks super different from a fracking crew, looks super different from an empty well pad. Like you really could teach, you know, a five-year-old to do it. But you have this almost operating real at scale is the problem. So, and yeah, so you said in a few days, it's done, it, it's, it's evaluating a huge amount of, of different pads, like thousands of different pads. Yeah. Yeah. Tens wow. of planets. Holy cow. Yeah, you're looking at other countries' activity. So right now we're, we've only turned it on for the continental U.S. because um, we're targeting uh, like Henry Hub and WTI traders for the product. But yeah, absolutely, we could turn it on elsewhere. Now there's not a lot of fracking outside of the U.S., um, but I think you know that's slated to change in South America. So yeah, we absolutely could build an international version of it. Man, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. Pretty cool. Anything else, uh, conception part of your show? Um, you want to talk about some of the other uh, satellite technologies and um, kind of what they what they're used for in energy and like what they're you know what they can potentially do, or is that a different part of the show? Well, the drill down is going to go into uh, yeah yeah. Let's do that. Let's just do the drill down. Let's do let's take this okay. to the drill down segment where you're going to break in break into the different types of satellite technology, what it's used for across the board, and then we'll, we'll, we'll figure out which one we want to dive into and ask more questions on. Sure. Okay. So we've, you know, there's, um, there's a history of satellite imagery and the energy industry. And I think, I apologize if I get this wrong, but I think it starts with a company called Orbital Insight. They were the first ones to kind of use satellite imagery to evaluate energy. And what they did is they took a lot of the publicly available satellite imagery, right? So NASA has a constellation called Landsat. They give out free satellite data. You can go download it on their website. And uh, the European Space Agency has a constellation called Sentinel. Again, they give out free data. And Orbital Insight took this free data and they looked at uh, oil storage depots that had floating top storage tanks. Right, so um, the the top of the tank moves up and down depending on the level of oil inside, and they were able to figure out based on the angle of the satellite, and the angle of the sun, and the shadow that they observed in the picture, exactly how full or empty that moving storage top was. And so they created a product that gives you regular insight into what these oil these oil inventory levels are all around the world. Right on. That's cool. Yeah. That was, that was one of the first, I think, uh, uses of satellite imagery in the energy industry, at least when was on that? the uh, investment side. Uh, I want to say 10 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, in the last 10 years, a lot has changed on the satellite side of the business. So satellite images used to be something that only governments and big corporations had access to. And that has changed really, really quickly. So we talked about Planet Labs earlier. Another one of the things Planet Labs did is they made satellite imagery really cheap. Well, Planet Labs and Elon Musk both deserve equal credit for making it really cheap. And they did it because when they used to build satellites, they would build them for government customers. And so money wasn't an op wasn't wasn't a restriction, right? So they would build these, you know bus sized satellites with huge lens that would fly in a high orbit that would stay up for decades. It would be preloaded with fuel so they could stay in that high orbit, right? And they were very expensive point and shoot satellites, but they gave governments critical information about what they needed to know. And Planet said, okay, instead of spending $500 million on a satellite, what if we spent $100,000 on a satellite, a satellite that's the size of a coffee can, right? And we'll put it in low Earth orbit where it will only stay up for you know, less than five years, but we'll just put hundreds of them up there. And because we're in a lower orbit, we don't need as big of a lens. We can get the same quality data. And because our costs are so low, it's going to be cheap to launch. And we, you know, we'll be able to collect a bunch of imagery at a cheap price. And um, that kind of kicked off the CubeSat re revolution. And now you know, it's hard to throw a stick in San Francisco without hitting a satellite company. 
There's tons <laughs> of these CubeSat startups that are putting up constellations of imagery. So the, the revisit frequency of imagery is going up. The resolution is going up and the costs are going down. And all this is happening in real time in the last couple of years. It's really started to ramp. And so for the first time, satellite imagery is becoming available to the masses. You know, this, this thing that everybody thought that it was just like, you know, governments get it and, or big companies get it. Um, you know, it's, it won't be long before you or I will be tasking satellite photos from our phones. That's how cheap it's getting. And, and so, um, you know, the natural thing that everybody wants to do is, is, okay, how can we use this to make money? Right? We now have all these pictures of the earth. How do we turn it into money? Well, you know, originally the satellite companies, they wanted to completely vertically integrate. That was their business model. They said, we don't want, you know, we know that the, the money's in the data, not in the actual picture. The picture is pretty, but like the insight you get from it, that's what's valuable, right? And so they tried to hold all their, their imagery very tightly and close to themselves. And um, they tried to, you know, go into these markets, insurance markets and other markets and create products, and they just couldn't get it to work. Right. So now their uh, their new business model is, is to have partner companies like Cinemax who know certain businesses really well and can create that last step of turning the images into valuable data. <laughs> you have to know a business really well, right? And we know energy trading really well. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Okay, so the other thing with uh, satellites, maybe in increasing the value of them would be to put on like super cool filters or some way to like start really analyzing the natural process of the world, like where CO2 is naturally coming out of the earth really a lot versus hydrogen or, you know, yeah. other, other things going on, fires, right? What, what started yeah. these fires? So what you're talking about is uh, a certain kind of satellite called hyperspectral satellite. So optical satellites, they just collect visible light, red, green, blue. Hyperspectral, they collect more than 20 bands, sometimes up to 400 or more of non-visible light. And someone who's much smarter than me can take this information and they can start to tell you really interesting things about what the composition of what you're looking at is based on um, these extra bands that are coming in. And I don't know this directly, but I've heard through the grapevine, BHP is using this to find mineral deposits. They, have, they are using hyperspectral satellites and analyzing the ground to say, we think these types of ores are present here or there. And because it's satellite data, they can do it at scale. They can literally scan the earth looking for what they want. Right on. Now, is that gases? Because you do gases like that? Or? You can do gases too. Yeah. Um, they can detect methane leaks. They can detect CO2. Planet, um, they're launching a constellation of satellite called Carbon Mapper, which they're just hyperspectral satellites doing exactly this. Right on. How do you get in touch with those guys? How do you see that data? <laughs> uh, you got to pay a lot for it. Zenmax <laughs> spends over a million dollars a year on satellite images. But that is probably some really interesting data. One of the one of your hypotheses about the Bermuda Triangle. Oh man, methane well, that, leaks. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of methane coming up there. Massive methane bubbles that are drastically changing the density, swallowing ships and shit. You know what I mean? If you got massive bubbles coming from the Earth's processes that are breaking out from the crust as the Earth is de volatizing itself in time that's what we're living in we just think that yeah. it's all static and it's all cool but the earth is like totally dynamic and really changing fast on massive scales can you imagine this huge bubble coming out of the ocean man i would ship uh, and the planes it'll change the density of the air oh so they'll just fall out of the sky yeah you're cruising along and literally blow up or blow we, up because the combustion. We learned that real quickly in World War II. If you flew over this place, it, it would just blow your plane up. Because man, I love where this conversation is going. This feels like Rogan podcast. You know, we're talking about <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle. Well, you are the guest, but my it's friend. science based. Yeah. The question I have: Have you guys thought about that? No, not until right now. I, I, I hate to say it, but we're a business. Who's going to pay me for the Bermuda Triangle methane mapper? Right, right. Probably uh, some other country you, then. 
Yeah, well, I, I probably guess, you know, there's, there's safety uh, issues. Discovery Channel will pay you for it. There we go. <laughs> I mean, dude, you could be a host of the freaking Discovery Show, guaranteed. <laughs> they would pull you in, beard and all, and 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 you'd be great at the Discovery Channel looking for methane seeps and how exciting that would be. All right. If this Synmax thing doesn't work out, that's plan B. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, Synmax. It sounds like it's working out. <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, I, I think so. Right on. How long has Synmax been around? About a year. Wow. Right on. And uh, okay. So back to uh, you know all the things that you guys generally do at Synmax, what you're focused on. Uh, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Sure. Um, we're focused on development of further development of Hyperion, right? We've got additional features we want to pull in. Eventually, you know, we don't, we want to go all the way down the value chain. We don't want to just sell, hey, here's all the frackers, here's all the drilling rigs. Um, because for a lot of people, that's not the end of the value chain. We want to sell, here is what production is going to be for the next three months, right? Because we know what's completing right now. Like we know what's in the pipeline. So we know what production is going to be. And I, th I think we are going to be able to achieve that. I think pretty soon production is going to be unknown in energy trading at least for the for the immediate future. And right now it's very far from it. You know, production surprises can can come in the BCFs per day very easily. Wow. Yeah, I mean my only my only insight into it is go to the railroad commission which is like 3 to 4 months, sometimes 6 months lagged from the operator actually reporting it to the entity, then the yeah. government agency and their database putting it in a form that I can actually read what they claim they've reported and you're saying that in 3 days you're seeing, I'm guessing it's uh, temperature anomalies in production, or how are you actually seeing production? Well, we, we don't see production, but we can see the active crews. And you can actually get a one-day lagged version of production, although it's modeled, if you are good at taking the pipeline flows that flow across state lines, because all of that is public information, and you regress it into his, some historical data from you know, the Texas Railroad Commission and um, uh, other entities that are you know, rep reporting oil and gas, right? So you can use these pipeline flows to get a pretty good idea of what current production is. But yeah, on a massive with, base, with yeah. this frack data, with this frack data, you know when a frack crew starts, how many wells are on the well pad, how long it's going to take them to complete, and when that gas is going to start flowing. So... In theory, right? It's it's all it's I mean it's all an uncashed check right now until we actually develop it. But the plan is we're going to be able to very accurately uh, predict what near term production is with this data. Do you have? Do the satellites have temperature gauges? Some of them do. Some That's of them cool. Do. Not not the ones we're using. Um, there is a constellation owned by NASA called Nightfire. Um, but the resolution is really bad. It's like hundred meter resolution, so it can detect flaring. You can you can pick up flaring, you know, and you can and and I've built flaring models in the past based on that data. But unfortunately, you can't you know you can't get it down to a granular enough level to really you know tell any anything useful beyond that. I would I mean for me on the geologic scale, I think that would be super interesting or useful you could you can maybe see in the oceans where warmer water is and cooler water and sure and the the ge geologic formations up and down the coast of california that are getting hotter or cooler sure based on these there's huge cracks there's a company in austin called albedo space they're launching a satellite that's going to have 10 centimeter resolution with a thermal camera on it so they'll definitely be able to get you what you want but i think they're about two years away from launching Oh, damn it. I got to speed that up. Yeah. We got no time. <laughs> uh, okay, right on. So oil and gas, I, I see what you guys are doing there, what you're gearing up for. Um, and and you you mentioned it, uh, or your website certainly does. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just kind of highlight what else your company does outside of, of oil and gas markets with this technology. Yeah. So not directly related to oil and gas, but we are also monitoring dark ships. So a dark ship is a ship that's not transponding. There is a network of transponders called AIS that ships are supposed to use to avoid collisions. And in recent years, companies have started collecting those pings, right? So it's a localized system that a ship has that just beams out its current location to the immediate vicinity. So that any other ship with this AIS system, you know, is also sending it out and they're receiving that signal. And between the two ships, they can do the math to decide if there's going to be a collision or not and avoid it. 
Well, in recent years, people have started collecting these AIS pings and aggregating them together. And you can get you know, maps of all the light ships, right? Ships that are transponding around the world. Well, if you want to do anything illegal and you don't want people to know where you are, you just turn that system off. And so we have this huge problem in the world of dark vessels. They're engaged in anything from you know, moving Iranian crude, right? Um, to drug trafficking, to human trafficking, to wildlife trafficking, um, to military vessels, right? And it's, it's become a huge problem because the ocean's really, really big. And so we, we just don't have the ability. Yes, that's a fact. I checked it. It's huge. And we just don't have the ability to monitor the whole thing. And so what Synmax is doing is we're using um, this satellite imagery to cover huge, potion, huge portions of the ocean. And then we're using object detectors to find these vessels, determine whether they're light or dark, and um, turn that data into a new way of tracking ships, whether they have their AS transponders turned on or off. So how do you know when it's turned on and when it's turned off? How are they transmitting the ping? So they transmit the, the ping just over radio frequency. It's unencrypted. So um, there are terrestrial monitoring stations that pick these pings up, but they you know, only go maybe a thousand kilometers offshore is their range. And then there well, are, are they pinging through satellites. water or are they pinging radio. through oh, air? In, in, just, they're just they're just sending radio waves, not not through water, but, you know, through space. So it's not sonar or anything like that. No, it's not sonar or anything like that. And so there's um, a couple of companies. One's called Spire. They have a constellation of a bunch of satellites that just sniff out these signals and then they just sell the information. So, you know, we can look at these AIS signals and we can look at these ships that we found in our images over the ocean. And we can determine, is this ship transponding, yes or no, right? Wow. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you, you can also follow airplanes, right? Flights and shit, right? Yeah, but um, then you run into a latency problem. So most people don't know this, but you only get certain windows of opportunity to talk to satellites. And that is going to change with the next generation of satellites that are going to have instant communication through Starlink. But right now, you have to wait for your satellite to fly over a ground station to both send it instructions and receive data back from it. And most of the ground stations are at the poles. Most are near the North Pole, like in, in Northern Norway, because you know most of the satellites, they fly um, in a, um, a polar orbit from one pole to the next. And then you just let the Earth rotate underneath them to collect all of their images, right? And so you only get to talk to your satellite once every 90 minutes. And you know when you, when it's in your field of view, you'd better be uploading and downloading and data. Otherwise, you have to wait another ninety minutes to talk to it again. So the problem with airplanes is you know the flight's over by the time yeah. you get the information. <laughs> right. We we definitely do. We we've seen planes in these images, and they show up in a really cool way. They they look like a rainbow because um, the way that the satellite camera takes the picture, it takes the red band, then the green band, then the blue band, right? And they're just fractions of a second away. But the plane is moving so fast, you see a red plane, and then a green plane, and then a blue plane. Right. So you can actually, you know, we've done it. You can measure the distance between the planes on the or the, the image, the red, green, and blue, and you can tell how fast it's going. Wow, right on. But the information's useless because the planes already <laughs> Come on, the man. by the time you see it. That's entertainment. <laughs> put entertainment. That yeah. Put that out that's on TikTok or something. Discovery channel stuff. <laughs> we keep coming back to Discovery Channel. I think that's that's gonna have to be my next career move. I don't know, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely attach them to some of this content we create from this show and just let them know <laughs> that uh, this is happening. Uh, right on, man. Well, I I definitely really enjoyed uh, getting to to know the company more and and specifically the technology and how you're applying it. Um, yeah. Uh, anything else for the drill down before we move into the completion segment of the show? No, I think we covered a lot. Nice, Stan. You need some whiskey. No, but I'm, cur I'm curious whether or not you could do an instantaneous methane assessment of the planet. <sighs> Probably. Yeah, I think I think once satellites, you know, the next generation of satellites, they're all going to talk to Starlink. So they're all going to be instantly communicating. Then it's just going to be like, hey, log into the satellite, take a picture right now, and you'll get it. That's coming in the next couple of years. So yeah, you could, you could do instantaneous um, uh, methane detection. And finally solve the Bermuda Triangle problem. Right. <laughs> yes. All right. So we are definitely going to the completion segment of the PB podcast now uh, with Eric Anderson from Synmax, Synmax.com. 
Um, man. Uh, okay. So yeah, talking about the completion, talking about, uh, kind of, kind of bringing it all back together. You, you studied commodities, you studied the volatile markets and how it changes. And this idea that it's supply and demand driven, um, you know, there's not a lot of nature in a lot of that. And that's what I think Stan was saying with his comment, you know, how much geology is involved in, in some of these ideas. Um, cause there's this, this, this nature is chaotic, right? And we're, we're trying to pull out something from that and, and make predictions and, and make a business out of it. And, and the reality is it's, it's, it's very chaotic. And there's a reason why it's not predictable. Oil and gas industry, there's geopolitics involved, plus just the very challenging ability to, uh, to make predictions about oil and gas and our successes or our failures, uh, where new deposits are, where old ones are. You know, what, Outside of supply and demand, what do you think are like the biggest kind of strains on commodity prices for for natural resources, oil and gas, mining metals and battery technology? You know, what's what's really causing those prices to move around and, and change, in your opinion? Outside of the fundamentals? Outside <laughs> outside of the, the mysterious, you know, can term, oh, it's supply and demand, guys. You know, like, okay, I, yeah, I get that. It doesn't work. There's something else involved. What is that? You know, how do you start breaking down outside of supply and demand? Yeah, I, I think like any market, there's a huge psychology component too, right? I, and and that definitely plays a factor in price, even though it probably shouldn't. So it should be purely supply and demand driven. That's how we're adding value to people's lives by appropriately pricing energy, right? Energy needs to go up sometimes so that oil and gas companies can make the appropriate investment right, and turn a profit so that we can have energy in the future. And sometimes energy needs to go down right, because too much is being produced and there's just not enough demand for it and we're going to get an overhang. right? So, so the fundamentals should create this stability. But like you said, it's not. It's chaotic. And I think a huge part of that is psychology. I think people interpret the fundamentals different ways. People interpret the market different ways. Um, and you know they have their own internal biases that cause them to trade in non-optimal ways and, and can cause huge problems. And I'll give you an example of it. There was a hedge fund called optionsellers.com. And like the name implies, their strategy was to sell options. And I'm sure you two know what an option is, but for the sake of your audience, right? An option is a right, but not an obligation to buy or sell an underlying security. And what that means is it's just an insurance product. Right. So if the underlying security is a stock and I buy um, a call option on the stock, then I am buying the right to purchase the stock in the future at a given price. And a put option, it's the right to sell it. So, you know, you can either be the purchaser of the insurance or you can be the seller of the insurance. And if you're the purchaser of the insurance, you get the upside possibility. And if you're the seller of the insurance, then you get the premium. Okay. This optionsellers.com, they were going way out of the money. So they were looking at the options that were extremely unlikely to be profitable, right? They're away from the current price and they were selling them and they were collecting a little bit of money for selling that insurance policy. And so they're basically saying, we're going to collect this premium. We're going to get paid by the market to collect this premium. And uh, we are confident that because it's so far out of the money, we're just going to get paid this tiny premium and nothing bad is ever going to happen. And I think you can see where the story's going. Well, they knew nothing about natural gas. Okay, but they decided to sell a bunch of options in natural gas and the price moved big against them and it blew up their fund because they were idiots, right? And when they started to get out of the market because you know they did this all on leverage and so their bank I'm sure was calling them and saying you guys need to get out of the market right now, right? They were forced to transact on the market um, just at whatever price they could get because they had to close their positions. And when they did this, it caused havoc for everybody that was you know, behaving rationally in the market. Because now all of a sudden, they are buying and selling at irrational prices because they are being forced to get out. And it just it swung the price of gas up and down in this horrible, chaotic way that had nothing to do with the fundamentals. And I'm, I'm sure it caused a lot of, of traders in the market a lot of angst. Right on. That but that's example. a huge component. It's just it's people's psychology and their hubris for thinking that they're savants and they found this magic <laughs> strategy and they, I don't need the fundamentals. I don't need this. I, I'm smarter than everybody else. So 
you know, and, and like, I'm sure for years and years and years, optionsellers.com thought they were smarter than everybody else because they were just collecting these premiums and it was just like free money, you know? But then once, once the roulette wheel finally came up, right, on the number they didn't want it to, they lost everything. Sheesh. Uh, okay. Okay. So uh, one thing I, I was paying attention to were these ducks and you brought it up in the show and you guys actually follow this stuff. So I'm, I'm really curious on somehow diving into your data and looking at all this stuff. But we, we saw in 2019 that there was a big problem in the unconventional plays. It was not getting better. We were getting, we were getting more non-expected results with more drilling and more money. And the numbers of the Permian Basin in particular were in the billions of how much dollar from PE money was coming in. And it was just going to drilling and drilling and drilling. And you know, it, you put all these, you put all the well bores in the ground and you look at a map, it looks just like, just like it did in the early 1900s when you see those maps of all those derricks stacked up next to each other. Mm -hmm. We did the exact same thing. History totally repeated itself. It was a total waste. There's a lot of waste in the Permian Basin. And so the PE guys were going, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, it's just not going to happen. And I, I went to some of those meetings. And I talked to those guys and they hated us. Right? They're like, I don't care. You're oil and gas. I don't care what you have to say. I'm not interested uh, because of how how difficult that was. And and you see that coming in 2019, the challenge there and and the, the idea that, okay, drilling money is probably not coming back anytime soon. What are we doing? Well, we have thousands of ducks. We had thousands of drilled uncompleted wells. We did one of our very first shows in 2019 about that, uh, these ducks, the amount of ducks. And then we see 2020 come in and all of a sudden the frack crews were out there going pretty, you know, bananas. We were seeing like a hundred wells fracked a month kind of thing. Boom, boom, boom. And you're going, whoa, you know, and I was thinking, okay, that's that's exciting because of the results, right? Are these sweet spots actually growing where we think they are and all the geology of that? But then I was w watching the commodity price and I was thinking the Permian Basin, it's world renowned infrastructure needs to be fed. That's a beast that needs to be fed with fluid and gases. And we were doing it. We were sustaining the volumes and the maximum output of the Permian Basin without a lot of new drilling. It was just a lot of ducks. It was a lot of completions that were going on. Yeah. So now right. we've exhausted that and this curve is like done this, right? We've opened up this big void, I think. And now we're running out of ducks. We don't have, we certainly don't have the ducks that are in the, what we thought were in the real good parts of the reservoir. We're running out of them. I don't see the drilling money like running back to us, right? I'm arguing that the prices of oil and gas could be, you know, going the total opposite that we saw in 2020 when it went negative. I think we we might be <laughs> we might so. be yeah. arriving at a time at the end of summer, sometime at the end of this year, we might be arriving at a, a very volatile time in the market. What do you think about that hypothesis? Oh, I agree. It's definitely going to be super volatile and it's all on the supply side. And your story is absolutely correct. We had an overhang of ducks. We completed them. The there's no ducks left. Okay, the ducks we have now are working ducks. All right, they're, they're just kind of the ducks that exist because the drilling rig left, but the frack crew hasn't shown up yet. And we've seen the ratio of rigs to fracks climbing. I, I know last time I said fracks to rigs, right? But rigs to flack, fracks climbing um, uh, to the point of where it seems like we now have the maximum number of rigs that we can have per frack crews in order to just kind of complete everything we drill. So we're at this really important time right now, according to my data where, you know, what is going to be the new direction for the industry? Are we going to increase rigs and build up our duck inventory back again? Or are we going to just kind of hold it steady? Because I don't think the frat crews have the ability to ramp quite yet. I haven't seen them ramp. But the last year, it's been very, very stable. And, you know, there's nobody knows the exact answer, but there's a couple of leading theories, right? So number one is maybe the industry has finally found restraint which I don't think is likely. Like, you know, the, the oil industry of the last hundred years has never found restraint. There's always been a boom bust cycle. And I don't think that there's anything magic about right now that like the industry has restraint and they're not going to, you know, go drill when the price is high, right? Or maybe there are supply chain and labor issues that are pulling back frat crews. And I think one piece of evidence that supports this is in the last Halliburton call, they tried to put a positive spin on it, but they said, we have completely sold out our frat crews, right? Like they're like, a car dealership and we sold all the cars out, right? They're acting like this is a really positive thing. Between the lines of that statement is you don't have the ability to create any new frat crews. 
right? Like a fracker is different from a drilling rig. A drilling rig is a unit that drills. A fracker is a collection of a lot of things, okay, that make it a frack crew. And if you miss any one of those things, you don't have a frack crew. And, you know, there's so many supply chain problems and so many labor problems in the world right now that I just don't think that we have resolved those enough to ramp frack crews. So it'll be interesting to see if we're going to rebuild the duck inventory in, you know, the industry's hopeful anticipation of being able to rebuild frack crews and complete them, or if we're going to just, you know, okay, frack everything that we drill. Yeah. Right. Right on. Well, we're along for that ride, man. And, uh, yeah. I'm definitely, it's, uh, is it possible to see what you see or hear what you hear? Do you have like a, a podcast or a vlog or something that gives people <laughs> this information, this, this not, uh, yeah, the information you yeah, have? Yeah, well, and, you know, you got to pay for it. <laughs> um, so, so you can, yeah, you can, you can contact Synmax, you can go through our website and you can subscribe to our data and our analytics um, just by going to synmax.com. Um, I will put teasers through our Twitter account. Our Twitter handle is Synmax Data, uh, but obviously I'm not going to give you the full thing because that is uh, a privilege that is paid for by our customers, um, right? But you can definitely see some, some interesting tidbits of analysis that we've selectively chosen to put out. Um, the energy trading community is really active on Twitter for some reason, so that's that's where we disseminate it. Right on. Well, I'll have to uh, dust off the Twitter account when we do this show and and uh, help uh, get some of these clips out there on your your Twitter. Yeah, account. well, I mean, dust it off for more reasons than just that, man. Twitter's about to become uh, a free country again, right? Did you hear? <laughs> Musk's gonna buy it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. It's a, it's gonna become a free country again. That's an interesting concept, man. Uh, it's an interesting concept. I just, I don't know what it is. I, I never could quite figure out how to make that one work and uh, all that social media stuff. I just, uh, unfortunately, uh, I wasn't the the president or CEO of a, of a podcast that really knew or, or had the ability to sit down and, and really figure out this social media thing. I just kind of <laughs> let it ride, man. We do our shows and we put it out and, and, uh, yeah. you know, we have our, our following that, that enjoys this, but, uh. Man, I think that was the completion part of the show. What do you think? I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Well, right on. Uh, well, thanks, man. Thanks again for joining the show. And Yeah, thanks for having me on.